Hey, I'm Justin. And I'm Vivian. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Le Fonds de Recherche du Québec and powered by Neuro, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself, who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia. And we're back with Dr. Salah El-Mestikawi and Dr. Michael Lifshitz. We're going to continue our very intense and in-depth conversation about the future of neuroscience. So here it goes. So that's why the question, what is mental health and where do you put the border is a bit, uh, is a tricky one. But we, we have to work hard on that. You know, Sally, you brought up a really good point because this tension between excellence and then not being addictive, I think, is one tension I really experience in grad school. Because as a grad student, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast may feel this way too, that you're intelligent, you know, you're supposed to create this amazing research project and do it well and do it excellently. But then if you if you get too stuck on that, then you can also veer to not having good mental health because now you're staying at the lab like 12 hours a day. You're, you know, just like your whole life is being poured into this project. And so um, what do you think is that tension? Or maybe you can speak from personal experience of being so emotionally attached or you invested in, in a project as a grad student, but also wanting to be mentally healthy. Michael, go first. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, these are, you know, these questions are hard to answer because I think one thing I've like, I feel more and more in my life is that people are very different from one from the other. And I think like personally, I have a tendency to look to others and think, oh, if I could be more like that person or I could do it more like that, then everything would make more sense. But then I realized that like all these different people I look up to are completely different from each other. They all do it a different way from each other. They're like one of them's like, you know, working their butt off every day, like works really fast and intensely and makes amazing things. Then someone else like really slowly here and there just like chips away at things and then they do amazing things. You know, some people are really balanced. Some people are morning people. Some people are evening people. Yeah. And so like... <laughs> no one certain, size fits all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and in a way, this kind of ties back to like that initial question that I was saying keeps me up at night, which is like, how do you actually feel into yourself, whatever that is, and find what feels right for you? Because like, you know, like I could say, you know, like for me right now, especially because of the pandemic and stuff... I'm learning that I need to like take it easy on myself and be balanced and like get up early um, and these kinds of things, you know, like just live a more balanced lifestyle and, I love and not go to extremes. Yeah. Michael, you know, you, you know how to take time for yourself, which is something that was right. shocking for me. And I worked with all kinds of different supervisors and, you know, it's the first time that, you know, I'm going to take a couple of days and I won't be answering emails. <laughs> and I was like, don't email no, me. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Salah, do you do that? Are you able yeah, to I would take have to come back yourself? to what we were discussing yeah, before because it's, I have some, and uh, I know this pandemia is, uh, and I can see it on my kids and, uh, you know, the for young people and students, it's a really hard time. 
So one thing I would like to emphasize is that one thing important, uh, you're passionate about your work or you are not or whatever, doesn't matter. What is important is that when you are starting to get really bad, you have to recognize it. And this is not obvious. Okay, uh, depression, anxiety, phobia, uh, overconsumption of computer, drug, whatever, is very sneaky. You won't see it. Uh, and uh, as, again, as someone close from a psychiatric hospital, I know something by discussing with, like, I'm not a doctor myself, I'm just a biologist. Um, I had this discussion with a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist. He said that he has two kinds of patients. Those who uh, uh, know that they, are, they have something wrong, acknowledge their, their problems, and also adhere to the program and the effort made by the psychiatrist to make them better, will follow their treatment, will, et cetera. And those who are in, in very strong denial, and those who have to, you have to fight them to bring them to the hospital, they, have to, they will always try to explain that it is you who have a problem, they are perfectly fine, you know? So that's a big issue for uh, people, students, in difficult time, being able to recognize that you're not well and go, and this is something you cannot solve by yourself. You need to go out and get some help because having a good, um, as Michael was saying, like, you know, waking up early, doing sport, eating properly, not spending too much time on your Facebook or whatever, uh, not smoking joints or drinking too much alcohol. And this is very sneaky. You won't see it happening. And when you will realize that there's an issue, it would probably be too far. So you need to recognize very early that you're not well and to be better, you need to drink or whatever and you need to go out and get some help. So that's uh, the problem of denial. So what was, I mean, I was answering the question from before, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, the, the little question was, uh, as a PI, do you take time for yourself in any way? Like Michael, you know, he, he's starting his, his, his that, career. Yeah, that's a very good issue also. Very often, I'm, I mean, I'm totally, I work all the time. I, I mean, me, I mean, the, the, the word I'm working makes no sense. I'm not working. I'm having fun. I love, I really love what I do. I'm so lucky to have, to work in this domain, to be so, something, so, so some questions that are so fascinating and, you know, like, so I, I never have this, you know, this sentence you hear sometimes, oh, too, too bad, today we are Monday. I mean, like, I'm like, wow, what are you talking about? Yeah. Or uh, when I hurt myself and I go to the doctor and I ask me how many time I want to take for sick leave and I, and I went zero, I'm going to go to the lab tomorrow morning, you know? <laughs> That's great. And so uh, so uh, working is not an issue, but if I, I know... I, I recognize that if I want to be creative, uh, well, balanced, and go forward in my research, I need to have a social life. I need to take care of my kids. I need to be in love. I need to do nothing, sit somewhere and just do nothing. Uh, I need to watch a stupid movie. Uh, <laughs> you know, like all this is part of a complete picture. So yeah, you, you need, you really need to have a balanced life. And as a PI, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to, to say that there are rules <laughs> right. and to be too rigid, but uh, at least for me, that's how it works. And as a PI, do you think you have a responsibility towards your students uh, or um, a, 
you know, responsibility to them that to assure that they're, that they're going well, that they have a balance. Oh anyway. yeah. yeah. That, that's a key issue. It will, it will show right away. Hmm. Uh, students that have an imbalanced life that for example, work too much or yeah. doesn't work and try to hide it. Uh, you know, like uh, probably have something wrong in his whole life. So uh, when when my grad, PhD, postdoc, uh, people working with me, my technicians, other researchers, uh, when they are unhappy, I mean, it impacts directly the work. If you want yeah. to to be in creating a good team with a very it's, with a very uh, dynamic uh, atmosphere, it takes happy people. When, when people are unhappy, oppressed, anxious, whatever, it doesn't work. So me, when, when I, I have one key criteria when I hire someone is like, how motivated are you? I'm not going to push you if you don't want to work. Like, there's nothing I can do for you. You just have to leave. And then when you work, I'm, try to be cautious that uh, people in the team, are, you know, like have a happy life. <laughs> Michael, as, uh, you're starting out in your, your PI uh, life. Do you find, do you have any questions for Sal or do you have any things that you're scared about a little bit or hesitant or you know, it's a big deal to, to, to be responsible for a team that humans after all. Right. Um, hmm. I don't know. I guess like one question is like, has to do with balancing all the different needs that come up, like different, different people's needs of, of my time versus like my own time to think and write or, um, but I mean, in general, like, I think just my instinct is to kind of prioritize the human side of things anyway. Like I just don't feel well if people around me that I'm working with. Right. Yeah. No, I just so, agree. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I just feel really lucky, actually, that um, the people I get to work with are all kind of on that page as well. And there's really a sense of, like, emotional support and uh, just making sure that everyone feels valued and taken care of. So, And do you have that open relationship with your students that I find is super important, that students are not scared to come up to you and say, you know, today I, I wasn't feeling that well. You know, yeah. it happens, but I remember that in previous labs, a lot of students were hesitant. They couldn't show that they felt bad. They had to, they had so much pressure on them always. I, and the I remember were, like, I remember coming to lab meetings sometimes, like one time, I guess, during my PhD, where I think a girl I really liked didn't like me back, you know? Oh no, and, that's and, the and worst. That, that, that that lab meeting I was just like basically in tears <laughs> and your mind was not there yeah and then yeah. I remember my PI being like Michael like do you have anything to say on this topic and I was just like not really at this time I'm kind of having a moment here but I think it's good to have space for that kind of thing you know yeah and we, that's just the other thing also uh, I would recommend is, is like very often when you're young, and at least me, I was like that. You keep your mouth shut because you're afraid to be judged or to say something stupid. And uh, so, um, yeah, it's very important to uh, help 
uh, young students to uh, express themselves and defend their idea, even if you disagree on your own. And uh, because uh, it's good for them, uh, it helps them to build up a critical mind. And sometimes they are right, you know. So if you're, oh, I know everything, I have more experience, and stuff, shut up. Uh, for example, this debate on addiction I was mentioning before, the paper, I, I, I hired a young postdoc. I'm still working with him. He came to my lab and he said, oh, your paper is crap, your paper is wrong. <laughs> and I love that. We had this right. challenging discussion. I'm going to prove, I was telling him, I'm going to prove you, I was, I'm right, you are wrong. And at the end, we published, I, we made some really fundamental discoveries through this, you know, this confrontation. But the beauty was that he was saying, giving his advice, you know. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, this can be generalized, but uh, it can be really uh, rewarding and uh, helping you to go forward to push people, young students to express themselves. Right. I think one thing supervisors maybe don't realize is the, the huge role they play in creating a culture, because I think that kind of conversation, Salah, that you're talking about arises from a culture where such discussion is encouraged and students know that, uh, that they can do this. And I think oftentimes we were just talking a couple of days ago with a student who said that, um, you know, when you're not allowed to do that, then it, it just, there's no open communication. And so I guess the question is, how as a supervisor can you create that culture, especially for a supervisor maybe who's more in science and engineering and is not in mental health and not an expert? <laughs> how do you create culture? They're not trained to be managers. What would you say to a supervisor like that? I mean, I have one instinct, but I'm very new to all this. Go <laughs> but for it, Michael. my <laughs> kind of general... My general feeling in life is that if you show vulnerability and weakness, uh, then others will trust you. Wow. Like if you, if you are kind of willing to put yourself on the line a little bit and show that like you're not this bulletproof, yeah. perfect person and that actually humans are fallible and we all go through difficult things, um, then other people will feel more comfortable doing the same, I think. I mean, obviously there's a way, I mean, the tricky thing, I guess, is that you also don't want to like dump your stuff on your students, <laughs> right? So it's not like you want to make people feel responsible for the things that you're dealing with. But I think just giving a sense that, you know, like, I'm, yeah, it's like, it's not like everything is just like smooth sailing and easy. And like, I'm like this, yeah, like that, that everything is bulletproof all the time, but that there are questions and, and even just asking people like, what do you think? You know, like, I want your opinion on this. Yeah, that's uh, that's an important <laughs> issue, uh, uh, and, and for me, it's not an issue. Uh, <laughs> probably because of my personal history, uh, uh, weakness. We all have up and down, and, and people who pretend to be always on the top are liars, and uh, they put themselves at high risk. So it's not a good life strategy. You have to go with the flow. Sometimes you're you're right, and sometimes you're wrong. And you know, be open about it. Sometimes you're strong, and sometimes you're weak. Uh, sometimes you're tired. 
It's so very important to, to recognize all that and to go with it. It's, uh, ev- uh, there's no uh, such thing as a superhero uh, who's always on the top. And uh, it's a myth. It's and a, it's a dangerous one. Yeah. And sometimes from weaknesses and from sideways, this is where the light will come. So uh, I'm not saying that you have to uh, contemplate your belly button all day long. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you still have, uh, if, you, if you engage in neuroscience whatever, whatever I mean, or mental health, whatever the domain, uh, you need, uh, there's a bottom line that you, you need to go for it at least. But you will not always be at 100%. Sometimes you will need to, uh, you know, you will feel bad, you will have a broken heart or uh, uh, something very stressful in your life that will occur and you will have to, you know, like you will oscillate. So this is part of life and you have to deal. You have to deal. You know, if you, you know, there's a sport I love, it's uh, rugby. <laughs> and um, one of my favorite players at this very, I don't know if I can translate that in English. It's uh, um, It's not those who never fail that are the best. It's those who fail and stand up. Mm-hmm. And for a rugby player, it's, it's, it's you can true. understand that this is really important. And this applies really well for, uh, for life in the lab, right. I think. You know, we will do mistakes at some point. We just have to, uh, to agree and uh, not hide it, face it, and then stand up again. You know? So that's uh, be resilient is the key. I don't know if uh, this answer. Yeah, your point. I know that's really good. Speaking about being vulnerable, if I may ask you uh, a more a little more vulnerable question, but how has the pandemic affected both of you more on a personal level? So, how has it been for your mental health? How has it affected your research, family life, relationship with students? As much as you would like to share. Do you want to go first, Salah? No, no, go first. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Can you? The beginning of your question. Sure, I, I just asked, how has COVID affected you, personal on a more personal level? So your the COVID health, pandemic, right? Okay. Yeah. So for me, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's been the most challenging mental health period of my life by far. Um, you know, it was also like coming back to Montreal. Like, there's a lot of new things all at once. Um, the first half, or like, you know while I was still at Stanford writing out the pandemic, I was living like a pretty relaxed life. I had a girlfriend at the time there. We were kind of like living together. It was almost like a little bit of a fantasy land. Like I was reading a lot and everything was relaxing (laughs) and I was fine. We'd go for walks, but then like coming back and just like a lot of new stuff, a lot of new stresses, a lot of exciting things, but a lot of new pressures, the winter, Lockdown, <laughs> uh, the freezing cold, oh, you know, man. like I started to, honestly, like I started to, uh, like, you know, like I drink, I smoke some weed here and there, but it got, it got to be like a little much and yeah, I started to feel pretty bad. And then it's been like a process of finding balance, leaning on friends and kind of now I'm feeling like much more composed but it's been a real struggle. And basically there came a point where I was like, I'm just completely burnt out and I need to take the foot off the gas significantly. And it's actually kind of like striking to me how much everything is just like proceeding as if that 
like things are normal because they're really not. I think yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, I hear stories about like, t- like professors, like assigning like more work than usual yeah. to their students because they think that now people have yeah, more time. time. Like that's <laughs> so absurd. <laughs> what a total mistake. <laughs> yeah. Like I really feel like, you know, cause zoom is exhausting. Like there's so much exhausting and just being in a space confined is exhausting. I think and not having social like energy um so i just really think like we all have to take it easy on each other and kind of like accept that that this shouldn't be like the most productive time of our lives you know this is i think like a better time for our whole society to, to like reflect a little bit and realize like how um certain kinds like how we're just like pushing a little too hard i think on a lot of fronts um yeah yeah, yeah i totally agree with you uh I, from my point of view i have a yeah i don't know it's very strange me i'm working from home i i went to the douglas very rarely because first it was closed and now it's open but uh, i'm used now to stay Uh, so I've lost a lot of uh, very important elements of my life. I, uh, uh, I live in Notre Dame de Grasse and I go to the Douglas uh, biking, oh. summer and winter. Oh, wow. So it's like two hours of act- physical activity every day that is gone. Wow. And, mm, and most yeah. of my day sitting in front of this computer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I used to have a very uh, social, uh, busy life. Uh, this has gone down too. Uh, this is where things are strange. I feel really well because I'm, my work is taking a very uh, passionate twist. And what I do is so exciting uh, that I don't realize that more than a year has passed. It's crazy. It's very, very strange and poor life. <laughs> uh, so... The lifeline for me has been work. Uh, but I've, for example, I used to travel a lot to France where I have uh, a, my ex-team is working there and I have so many, my family, my friends are over there. And this I've done like twice in a year, which is a very, for me, it's very low. I used to go there very often. Uh, so yeah, that's something we, I totally agree with you, Michael. There's something really strange. I cannot analyze really the consequences on me, but uh, I would advise everybody to be careful, take it more easy. And I totally agree with you. It's a time for reflection. It's a very important time for reflection because here we have a pandemia that is uh, uh, really changing our way of life. But in a way, we are lucky because if this was Ebola or... Uh, MERS-CoV-2 or whatever, the consequences would be much more dramatic. And this can happen tomorrow. So it's a, and this is so suddenly we realize that some people are so important in life, nurses, people taking care of shop, delivering you stuff on their car or bike. And usually we don't see these people. And suddenly they are uh, those who save us. So we need to have a reflection on that. How come we make the life of these people so difficult? You know, how come we don't value them more? So uh, how do you call them in English? It's indispensable worker, essential workers, work. essential workers. Essential workers, yeah. And when you look at the salary, some of them are 
have a very difficult and it's not normal uh, life school opening the schools you know having our kids being able to go to work because it's so important for their uh, development and also it's so important for the rest of the society because this is what allows you to work when you are parents of young kids uh, if you lose the teacher and all the people who are uh, in the schools uh, suddenly and these are considered as people with very low wages and very low recognition uh, social recognition so this is a time where we need to think about that and probably change a few things I don't know if this will happen but um, yeah. it's a good time to reflect on that so we're coming maybe, to, yeah, go uh, ahead Michael there's just maybe one other thought that I was that I feel like is maybe important to say is that I think feeling motivated is particularly difficult in this mm-hmm. time. This is something I've heard from a lot of students. I feel it myself, you know, like normally I'm really quite passionate about my work. I'm excited. It's, and there have been times during this pandemic where it feels like things that normally drive me, I just, I, they lose their luster, you know, and I think that for me, it's been really important to realize when that's happening. And I guess I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I have the kind of flexibility where I can kind of take a step back, take a break, do something different, like clear your head. I think that kind of like clearing of one's head mm. is really hard these days because like you can't go somewhere else. You can go outside for a freezing cold walk, which <laughs> is helpful sometimes, um, or like do some kind of sport outside. But I just think, basically like the concept of a break. Like I think having a kind of oscillation in your life where you really have time away from the things that normally you're working towards, I think that's what allows things to stay fresh and exciting. And so often like taking a break is the best way to like for sustainable, you know, passion and motivation. I just think it's important to like take it easy on yourself if you're feeling like oh my God, everything that I thought I was into and that I was working towards, it's all starting to feel like kind of drab and like exhausting. I think that's just normal right now, basically is what I want to say. To recognize it and take a break if need be. Right? Yeah. To be able to yeah. go further. It's not a, a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon, right? Death. I needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're coming to the end of our podcast. So... We're going to ask you just a couple questions. One question in particular, where does the future of psychiatry lie in terms of treatments? Ooh, that's a hard question. That's that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. So as I said before, first, uh, we need to unite our forces. So I say it's very clear at the moment that what is more efficient is like uh, biological treatments combined with uh, psycho, psychosocial, uh, uh, art therapy, uh, whatever, uh, put together. So for the moment, we are in a very dark age of mental health. You know, uh, if you can make a parallel, if you think of uh, contagious disease, when we had no knowledge of uh, what a bacteria was and how to make an antibiotics, just a few decades ago, people would mm-hmm. die from simple infection. So we are in this type of period. We don't understand. We don't have good drugs, etc. So the future of, uh, for me, clearly, it's, uh, I'm, I'm probably biased. <laughs> the future of, uh, of mental health is in understanding how the brain, the circuits, and all that are working 
and what can disturb them. I mean, I, me, I, in my recent work, this is what I think really we are, have make a breakthrough in the field of uh, compulsion addiction and uh, eating disorder by understanding something really key. And this is just the beginning. So for me, the future is, and, and I, once again, I'm probably totally biased, is in continuing to understand how the brain works. And but uh, I may be blind to many, many other aspects. Right. <laughs> and just before we go to you, Michael, you, you, you published, I think it was last year, a new study on anorexia that could lead to a potential treatment. Um, can you just expand a little bit on that, Salah? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is difficult to, to speak about that without uh, going into uh, detail. Uh, uh, this work started by a mistake five years ago, <laughs> a misinterpretation of something. And uh, so uh, obviously our vision at that time was... Uh, Addiction is a problem of the reward system, something everybody says. Right? The drugs are going to kidnap my reward system and uh, I'm going to be an addict. And this is when this uh, young postdoc came in my lab and said, no, addiction is not a, a pathology of the reward. It's a pathology of something that is higher in this group of structure that deal with this. It's a problem of uh, losing control and habits. So we started to investigate uh, habits and, uh, you know, habits is like what you, 80% of your day is made of your habits and it's fine. It's what makes you efficient. It's what makes you probably more pleasant, your life more pleasant. Uh, the problem is when the habits are automatic behavior that are triggered by your environment uh, and that are uncoupled from the consequences. You have a bad habit, you will continue to do it. You eat too much, you drink too much, you don't exercise enough, blah, blah, blah. So that's the problem with habits. So when, when you are unable to retake control of a habit, this is when you go into the pathology. And this is, we realized through this study that we published last year, at the end of last year, that uh, anorexic patients some of them, and probably true for bulimia and other kind of uh, eating disorder, have these excessive habits or uh, either too much habits or the taking control again is difficult for them. And we find subpopulation of neurons that we could manipulate to bring this back to normal. So now the next step, it's in the coming years, we're going to try to assess this hypothesis in, uh, in clinic with patients. And for me, that would be amazing. Um, but as I said before, I mean, this is a biology of the brain. Something that was really striking for us is that uh, our mutant mice in a normal environment live a normal life. You need to add a kind of stress on them to trigger the pathology. And it's to the point where we can predict just by measuring habit at the beginning of the experiment, which mice we can precipitate into anorexia or bulimia. So first we go them, make them bulimic and then two weeks later we make them anorexic. You know, so these are completely different behavior in terms of feeling. So um, yeah, the next step now is going, going to... Uh, apply this to... Uh, oh, yeah, I was saying that uh, uh, So the environment is key. And what is also very interesting is that even in this very bad environment, we need to have very large group of mice because half of them are not pathological. So it means that uh, the genes is not making everything. There's something else at stake here 
which is like probably, I don't know, like interacting with your mother or with your friend. Environment. Um, yeah. You know, like environment is a, a key actor. But still, some people are unable to take control and are, uh, some anorexic patients are very, very unhappy and want to regain control of the way they feed themselves. So I hope we will be able This I hope we are right. And I may come here in five years and say, oh, this was total crap. <laughs> <laughs> Such a science. <laughs> Such a science. Yeah. Michael, your perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm biased as well. But I think to me, uh, the future of psychiatry would really lie in integrating the kind of biological advances that we're making, which are incredible, but then with um, a deepening understanding of kind of how this social and subjective relationships work with our mind, with each other. So I think, for instance, like psychedelic therapies, which is something I'm working on more and more with Justin as well, um, I think that that really exemplifies this kind of issue. So these are like, you know, people are really excited now, like psychiatrists, Psychiatry as a whole is kind of jumping on board this idea because it seems to be yeah. psychedelic assisted therapy seems to be really helpful for people, for instance, with addictions or depression and so on. And what's interesting about psychedelics is that they're really both. So they're, it's a drug. It's clearly acting on the brain, on the biology, on the serotonin receptors and so on. There's like a very like, like intense perturbation of brain chemistry that is part of what's happening but then what's really really clear and like you know for especially when you're talking about like classical psychedelics like psilocybin or lsd it's clear that the therapy what the drug does is it opens a space for psychotherapy to have a deeper effect so if you just give someone like psilocybin they're not you're not going to cure their depression you really need to use this opportunity this kind of uh, rejuggling re of brain chemistry to now create new patterns of thought, new habits, integrate that kind of experience into people's lives in a way that actually lets them have like sustainable um, changes. So I think, yeah, I mean, basically I think like understanding better how the brain works, how to kind of like set the brain up for productive changes, but then also how to guide the person who kind of that brain belongs to, um, to actually like make use of that biological shift in a way that will like be uh, embedded into their larger life world in a way that's sustainable and meaningful, you know? Um, so to me, like it's just so clear that both of these approaches are intensely powerful, you know? Um, and I just think if we learn how to combine them, we're going to have the most uh, capacity to help people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You both had a great conversation. I think we learned so yeah. much. Great. Our audience learned so much for sure. I'd love to have both of you back again eventually <laughs> because this conversation could go on and on about mental health. Where does it come from? What is what it? Is it? You know, <laughs> mental illness. So super interesting. And I find just a lot. Okay. In 30 seconds, Salah, do you have any advice for Michael? He's starting his, um, his life as a PI. Do you have any recommendations to, to, to tell him? Enjoy it. 
So enjoy it. You, what, you'll you, see, what huh? were your favorite things about it? I was stupid and blind at that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I love uh, doing experiments, you know, like uh, going in the lab and doing my, running my experiments was a very powerful drug and rewarding for me. I really like what you said about uh, psychedelic drugs. It's so interesting. I mean, I'm sure that uh, ecstasy, psilocybin, and this kind of stuff, uh, we have so much to learn. And it's a matter, I'm sure, this, these are very good uh, treatments. It's a matter of dose. And as you say, it's not just you take your drug and it's okay. You need to work with uh, therapy, uh, whatever, uh, not just by it's yourself. It's <laughs> not a quick fix. It's really the whole experience around the treatment that's also important. Yeah, yeah. It shows the complexity of how we have to deal with mental health. It's a complex organ. It's a complex pathology. And we need to work all together. Well, thank you both very much. I hope you both enjoyed yourselves. You liked yeah, your experience. very much. Yeah? Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, thank you very much. It was really nice to meet you all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if you need help or uh, whatever, uh, like... Uh, for Whoa. the future. Do not hesitate to contact me. Uh, I'd be very pleased. To, uh... Thank you. Awesome. 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 So okay. thank you okay, guys, guys very much. And we'll keep Happy you in birthday. contact. Happy birthday. Happy <laughs> birthday. <laughs> <laughs>